All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific Wednesday morning show for you. All eyes on Ottawa today. It is a political showdown in the nation's capital. A crucial vote coming up this afternoon on a motion by the opposition here to create an anti-corruption committee to investigate the Justin Trudeau government. Now, here's the deal. Trudeau has designated this vote as a confidence vote. So if this motion goes through this afternoon, triggers a federal election. All right. You think you think you're busy enough with a provincial election going on here in British Columbia. How about a federal election too? Now there's lots going on here. All the caucuses in Ottawa meeting right now. We've got a number of press conferences coming up later this morning at 10 a.m. our time. Jugmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader, really on the hot seat here about how the NDP MPs are going to vote on this thing if they want to plunge the country into an election here. He has a news conference coming up at 10 o'clock, 10.30. It is the federal conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole. And then the vote this afternoon, likely around 12.15 our time, perhaps a little later. So we are watching this very, very closely for you here this morning and set this up for you with this dramatic vote coming up this afternoon here is trudeau yesterday speaking about this as being a confidence vote in his government the conservatives put forward uh, a motion that clearly outlines their lack of confidence in the government the opposition is going to have to decide whether they want to make this minority parliament work or whether uh, they have lost confidence in the government Ooh, i dare you i double dare you bring the government down do these opposition parties want an election right now that's the question i don't think they do what about trudeau does he want an election right now okay let's talk about this now with my guest brian Lilly, the very fine political columnist for the toronto sun brian very welcome back to the show double dog dare you yeah <laughs> it's the perfect analogy do you remember ralphie being <laughs> yeah, double sure. dog dare or sorry ralphie's little brother being double dog dare to lick the metal pole in a Christmas story. <laughs> yeah, That's do. what Trudeau's doing to the opposition right now. I double dog dare you. Yeah. What's uh, the, except, what is the deal with this committee? What are the conservatives trying to do here with this motion to create this committee? What's that about? What they're doing is what members of parliament have been uh, required to do, deemed to do, ch um, charged to do for centuries. I mean, this is... The ability to demand documents to investigate how the government is spending money is central to how our system operates. Right. Now, during the summer, of course, we had the, the Finance Committee and the Ethics Committee uh, investigating the Wee Scandal. Right. Uh, the uh, Government Operations Committee was about to start looking into it. The Official Languages Committee was about to start looking into it because, of course, the WIA organization couldn't provide anything in French. And so the Quebec MP said, what? Wait a minute. So, you know, there's a lot going on during the summer. And, and the headlines were negative, and it started to hurt the liberals in the polls. So Justin Trudeau provoked Parliament. Parliament comes back on September 23rd. There's a new speech from the throne. The committee start up again. They start asking questions about we again. Trudeau says, well, no, 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 no. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Right. We need to just focus on COVID. Now, of course, the Wee scandal comes out of his response to COVID to try and give $912 million to an organization uh, to hand out 
that he's very close to, and they would have a big payday from that. So it's not far-fetched that they would want to ask questions about that. But he says, no, 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 no. Finance and ethics should focus on legislation, and their real job's not this. So the conservatives say, all right, we will propose a special committee, 15 members, eight for the opposition, seven for the government. And in a minority situation, that's how it should be. If it was a majority government, it would be reversed. You know, they, they always allot positions on a committee based on uh, how many seats you have and, okay. you know, whether it's minority or majority. Okay. So the, the, the government... conservatives propose this special committee and the government right. says... If you do that, that's an election. Right. Right. The federal the Trudeau government's complaining here that this committee is too powerful. It would it would have the power to compel Trudeau to show up and testify and produce all kinds of documents. They say they're too busy dealing with the pandemic. So this is a fascinating move by Trudeau here to say, okay, you want to go through with this, you want to vote on this motion. Fine. I'm going to designate it a confidence motion. And if you do this, we're into an election campaign here. Now, have a listen to this, Brian. See what you think. Here is the federal NDP leader, Jugmeet Singh. Wow, this is a tough spot for him. Here's Singh. I can't imagine how the prime minister of Canada would look those people in their eyes, people who are afraid and worried and say, I know you're worried and afraid, but we're going to an election because I don't like a committee. That is outrageous and it is absurd. Let me be very clear. The only way there is an election right now is because the prime minister chooses to have one. If he wants to, then he should just come out and say, I want an election and explain why. Okay, I would point out that we're in the middle of a snap COVID-19 election right here in British Columbia. And Jugmeet Singh was out here the other day campaigning for Premier John Horgan and the NDP. So I guess he doesn't mind the snap COVID election here in British Columbia when it's the NDP that calls it, but it's a different story when Trudeau tries to trigger one. Anyway, Brian, your thoughts? Uh, well, you don't blame a scorpion for staining you, so uh, you don't blame politicians for being inconsistent. I, look, I, I thought that when you guys went to a provincial election in British Columbia, that the idea of a federal election was off the table because... You know, New Brunswick went to an election, you know, the Liberals own all the seats out there federally, and they're probably going to, or not not all of them, but a good chunk of them, and they probably will save them all if they go to an election. And then Saskatchewan goes to the polls. You think, well, the Tories own all those seats, and the Liberals don't care about Saskatchewan. But B.C. is a three-way race federally, and I thought, if you guys are going to the polls, no way will Trudeau. But he is so afraid of this committee being able to say, show us what you did, that he's willing to go to an election. And just for anybody that thinks this is all over the we scandal, Mm. let me just point out that the health committee has also been trying. It's not just the conservatives, the NDP and the bloc as well are trying to support a, a motion that would allow the health committee to look at the response to COVID-19 from health Canada and the public health agency of Canada and the Liberals have been filibustering for two weeks to try and stop that. So it's not just we. They don't even want any questions on how they responded. This is a committee that wants to study Canada's vaccine response, what they did with the National Emergency Strategic Stockpile, the early warning system uh, through the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, uh, how they're going to go forward, all these things which is exactly what the health committee should be studying, especially during the pandemic. And Trudeau still wants to stop that. 
Do you Why? think because he he wants the votes to say you can do whatever you want, but he doesn't want votes that say you have to answer questions. Speaking to Brian Lilly here about the drama in Ottawa unfolding today. Brian, do you think Trudeau actually wants an election and that's what this is about? Or is this just a clever way for him to shut down these committees looking into these politically sensitive areas for them? And he doesn't want the opposition snooping around on these issues. He knows the opposition doesn't want an election. So this is a clever way to shut shut those committees down. Or does he actually want an election here? He wants an election more than his kids want to go trick-or-treating for Halloween. I don't know if you've heard, but in Ontario, especially in Ottawa, where Trudeau lives, the local medical officers have said, don't go trick-or-treating. It's not safe. Mm-hmm. Trudeau wants people going, because it's not safe going door-to-door, they're worried about virus spreading. But Trudeau wants to go, have people go door-to-door campaigning across the country during a pandemic because he doesn't want documents coming out related to we or related to how his government handled COVID-19. Okay. He what you... is desperate for an election because he thinks he can get a majority. Let's have a listen to Aaron O'Toole here, the federal conservative leader, and what he had to say about all this. Confidence in the parliamentary term means a vote that can trigger an election. Uh, we're not going to let Mr. Trudeau suggest that our reasonable questions about a spending scandal mean we want to force a general election. Well, well, I guess Trudeau is within his rights to do this, though, right? Trudeau can declare this a confidence vote and put an election on the line here. He can do that as prime minister, correct? Traditionally, a confidence vote is a money bill. Uh, I've seen the opposition back in 2005 attempt to claim that a vote they were having was a confidence vote. I believe that was May 2005. The opposition parties banded together and tried to vote down the Martin government. The Martin government said, well, it's not a money bill, so it's not a real confidence vote. Right. That was a liberal government. Now we've got a liberal government trying to say, oh, you want to ask us questions? That's a confidence vote. There is no way that this should be considered a confidence vote. If members of parliament doing their ancient and rightful duty as elected officials to hold the government to account is suddenly a confidence vote, then everything is a confidence vote. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the unfolding drama here in Ottawa. Confidence vote coming up this afternoon in the Trudeau government. Could Canada be plunged into a federal election here? My guest is Brian Lilly. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Brian, really quickly, what do you think Jugmeet Singh is going to do here? I don't. He doesn't want an election, right? Is he going to side with Trudeau here to avoid an election? He doesn't have the money for an election, but his right. caucus is a bit divided. And, and I think he's in a tough spot. So I'm not sure. We'll find out in less than an hour. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, if he doesn't try and hold the government to account with these simple measures and caves to Trudeau's bullying, then I'm not yeah. sure that the NDP deserves to be reelected. Yeah, he would look, he'd look pretty weak here if he sides with Trudeau. Let's go to the phone calls. Frank in Vancouver. Hi, Frank. Hi, how are you doing? Good. You know, I, I welcome a federal election. Uh, you know, I think Trudeau is easily the worst prime minister in Canadian history. Uh, and I think uh, the Conservatives would easily win and they can start the process of fixing the country that the Liberals have completely smashed. Okay, thanks, Frank. I'm not sure he would, the, uh, the Conservatives would easily win. What are the polls saying right now, Brian? Uh, the polls are readily in Trudeau's favor, which is yeah. why he is desperate for an election. Right. And um, I, I think it'd be tough for the 
the conservatives to win unless the public turns against them and says, you forced an election because you don't want to answer questions. The thing is, though, I wonder if he's looking at what's going on here in British Columbia, where people were saying the same thing about John Horgan when he called a snap election here, and people, a lot, some people predicted the public would turn against him. Hasn't really worked out that way. He's still got that big lead and is expected and, and to win on Saturday. In, didn't work in New Brunswick either, and right. uh, I know it's scheduled in uh, Saskatchewan, but Scott Moe's going to cruise to victory, so right. now's a chance, they see. Peter in North Vancouver. Hiya, Peter. Hi, hi, Mike, and hi, Brian. Um, uh, thank you very much. Uh, you know, I'm not a person who's happy about going to the polls provincially. I don't want to take the risk personally right now. But it seems to me that what this vote is about this afternoon is whether you stand for corruption and a lack of accountability or, or whether you stand against those kind of things in government. I can't imagine how any parliamentarian, regardless of their party, can in good conscience say that government should not be held accountable for what they do. So, you know, if, if I've got to go to the polls again, in addition to Saturday, in order to take my personal stand as a citizen against corruption and, and for accountability in government, I'll take that risk. Bring it All on. All right. Okay, because Peter. I can't imagine, yeah. Thank, thank you, Peter. Uh, two calls in a row there saying, bring it on. Let's go to Scott in Port Moody. Hi, Scott. Uh, good morning. I don't know who Brian Lilly is. Uh, I'll have to look him up after the call and figure out why he's got such a massive bias against liberals. Um, anyways, the, he's, the, a col- the he's a columnist is- for Post Me. Uh, he's a columnist for the National Post. Oh, okay. Anyway, go ahead. Right there. Um, so yeah, I understand it now. Uh, so the conservatives just want to have 2020 hindsight when it comes to the COVID response. That's really the bottom line is, is they're grasping at straws. They don't have policy. They've got a very unpalatable uh, new leader who's replacing an even more unpalatable corrupt leader. Um, you're just wasting taxpayers time and money to, uh, to throw these things when uh, it could be answered in question period. And there's already enough uh, facilities and, uh, organizations okay. that can look into corruption. Okay, Brian, you better defend yourself there. Uh, I, I'm sorry, what's this caller's name? Uh, his name is uh, Scott. Scott has no idea how Parliament works, and if Scott, it, Scott, if that's how you think Parliament should work, you should give up your right to vote. MPs have been allowed at committee to ask questions. This goes back centuries. This is not something new. And the idea that the government should just be allowed to operate, regardless of who it is, and I would say the same thing if it was a conservative, Scott, but the idea that the government should be allowed to operate and spend without question is ridiculous. And if that's what you want, find a country that doesn't believe in democracy, because you clearly don't. Okay, squeeze another call. Malcolm and Burnaby, you got to go fast. Malcolm. Please keep in mind that Mr. Harper, I'll use that term Mr. very loosely, made sure that every bill that he was presenting to Parliament when he was in minority had the codicil, this is a non-confidence motion. Even if it wasn't the budget, even if it wasn't the throne speech, he made sure of it. So this game of blackmail, as I call it, has been going on for the longest time in minority government. So I don't agree with what Trudeau's doing. Thanks a lot for the call. Brian, real quick, do you think this is a smart move by Trudeau? Uh, one, your caller's wrong. That's completely false. I was there for the entire time with the Harper minority years and covered it. Uh, two, I don't think it's a smart move for Trudeau, but it may pay out for him okay. in the long run. We'll have to see with the voters. 
All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the Surrey Six shootings now, one of the most notorious and shocking gangland mass slayings in B.C. history. October 19th, 2007, six people gunned down in a Surrey apartment building. We have seen high-profile arrests and convictions in this terrible case. Now the appeals are underway at the B.C. Court of Appeal. Let's get an update now with Kim Bolin, Vancouver Sun crime reporter, who's been on this story from the very start. Kim, thanks a lot for coming on once again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, can you give us the update on what's happening in court uh, right now with these appeals? Well, I have to say, for the first time ever, I've been watching the appeal on the Internet. Uh, It's due to the COVID pandemic. Uh, They have a link. Anyone in the public can go on there and watch, and it's been pretty fascinating. Uh, Very limited seating within the Court of Appeal at the Vancouver Law Court, so... Uh, It's been a new way for me to actually cover a case. Um, The case itself is not particularly surprising. Uh, Lawyers for Cody Havisher and Matthew Johnston, the two Red Scorpion gangsters convicted back in 2014, are arguing that their clients' rights were violated in several ways, and therefore uh, their conviction should be overturned. Uh, They're claiming that a secret pretrial hearing back in 2013 violated their clients' rights. Um, And they're also saying that they didn't get some disclosure from the police that might have allowed them to further cross-examine two key witnesses known only as KM and Person Y. Uh, And they're also suggesting that there may have been more police misconduct than what had previously been believed. Of course, we know that four officers who worked on the case were charged with varying degrees of misconduct, the worst being uh, that one of the officers uh, had an affair with a potential witness in the case. So, uh, you know, they're kind of rehashing old ground, to be frank, uh, and the the Crown is responding, saying, look, most of these issues were decided uh, at the trial. They raised these issues then. They thoroughly cross-examined these key witnesses Uh, and that uh, the secret hearing had to be held uh, the way it was held because it involved informer privilege, and no one's allowed to know, obviously, when somebody's a confidential informant. So, But the defense lawyers weren't even at that secret hearing, and it's, of course, very challenging for anyone uh, to to know if something came out of that hearing that could have directly impacted uh, those defendants' rights because it was in secret, right? Right. Cody, Cody Havisher and Matthew Johnson, as you mentioned, Kim, two members of the Red Scorpions gang, both convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy. What sentence uh, did they receive? They received a life sentence with no possibility of parole for 25 years. Right. Uh, so, you know, they are going to be in prison for a long, long time. Uh, they've been in jail already uh, for several years. So, you know, this is an important case for them obviously, and some of these issues on the surface seem very, very serious, and we'll have to see where the Court of Appeal goes. Of course, what's really interesting now, um, well, the appeal's happening so far after the convictions, right? Just sort of another troubling thing about the judicial system that things take so long to move through the courts. But of course, now we've had Jamie Bacon, one of the leaders of the Red Scorpion gang, plead guilty to conspiracy and be sentenced. Well, what did Mr. Bacon say? He said, as part of his agreed statement of facts, that you know he was behind uh, this plot to murder one person, one rival named Corey Lau, and it kind of spun out of control, and six people ended up dead. But he said, these are the guys he sent to do it. So ironically, while they argue 
on appeal that their conviction should be overturned, the mastermind saying, yeah, I'm guilty and these are the guys I sent to do it. Right. Speaking to Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Bolin here about the appeals underway in the Surrey 6 case. Let's have a listen to this, Kim. This is Eileen Mohan, of course, the grieving mother of Christopher Mohan, one of the innocent victims of the Surrey 6 slangs. And here she is talking about some of her concerns. I'm now a little fearful. Christopher does need justice. And if everything for him is uprooted like this, um, I... I don't know how many people will have confidence in our court system. Okay, you really have to feel for her and the, and the loss of her son. The, the two gentlemen here uh, who are appealing in, the, in this case, the two members of the Red Scorpion gang, uh, Kim, Cody Havisher, and Matthew Johnston, what was, the, what was the main evidence against them at trial? Well, there was a lot of evidence, uh, you know, and that's something that the senior crown, Mark Levitz, pointed out this week when he was responding to the issues being raised on appeal. But we had these key witnesses, people that were very close or directly in the Red Scorpion gang, and they turned on their fellow gangmates in uh, what the defense is arguing was quite a controversial tactic by the police uh, because they used sort of extreme isolation. They cut off you know, potential witnesses from their loved ones. They said, oh, you're going to be at risk. And they kind of got them to turn uh, and to cooperate and to testify, right? So right away, these people, you know, we talked about person Y. There was another guy, person X, didn't end up testifying, but did turn against his former gangmates and implicate them. Um, and, you know, these people became quite dependent on the police. Uh, they had been involved in violent acts themselves in some cases, uh, K.M. was Cody Havisher's girlfriend. She lived with him at the time. She was probably the key witness implicating him uh, in the murder. So, you know, the defense is saying if we had more of this information that uh, they've now learned about from police, they could have perhaps discredited them more okay. at the trial. But what Prosecutor Mark Levitt said this week is, look, these witnesses were obviously very, very important, but there was all kinds of other evidence. And it was honestly like a little mini version of the original trial there earlier this week when he summed up the response by the Crown. And he said, you know, we have video surveillance, you know, outside Cody Havisher's building of um, these guys wearing hoodies coming and going from the crime scene. And it matches up with the evidence that the witnesses provided. And those witnesses, of course, didn't know there was video evidence. In addition, you know, you had at the Balmoral Tower in the parking lot um, you know, these guys arriving at a high rate of speed in a car. You had women going and coming from a Bible study in the same building. Um, and these two witnesses, one on either side of the murders, testified that they saw these kind of scary-looking guys in, in the hoodies, um, you know, acting suspicious in the parking lot, and then leaving at a high rate of speed in this 20-minute window that the Crown believes wow. the murders occurred, right? So... There was also, like, cell phone evidence, you know, uh, people who were talking to Corey Lal on the phone, one of his friends, who, you know, said that right at the time the Crown says these guys arrived at the door, uh, you know, uh, Corey Lal says, oh, F-word, hangs up the phone, right? Oh, wow. So that appeared to be right when they were knocking and breaking through the door and coming in, right? So okay. there were so many um, bits of evidence. Uh, there was also just what they found in Havisher's apartment afterwards, you know, shell case uh, boxes that matched the, the bullets that were used at the scene. On and on it went. I mean, the trial went for over a year. 
and there was a lot of evidence. But, you know, the defense is doing a good job at picking apart the pieces that they feel they can pick apart and hopefully, from their perspective, get a new trial. Okay, we continue to follow that appeal in the Surrey Six Slayings really closely. Kim, real quickly, uh, can you give me an update on this grisly discovery on Sunday of human remains in a blue recycling bin found floating in English Bay off Kitts Point on Sunday? What's the latest on that? Well, an unbelievable case. We still don't have an identification on the victim, and that will be everything, obviously, because once we know who it is, we'll be able to find out a little bit about uh, more about them and about who may have been after them. But it doesn't seem like a normal gangland murder on the Lower Mainland, that's for sure. We're hoping that the Vancouver Police will release an identity of uh, this person uh, found so tragically floating, uh, you know, just off a popular um, walkway there at uh, Kitts Point. So don't have much more because we don't have the identity of the person, but it's certainly not a typical uh, you know, gangland murder like the ones we've seen recently in the Lower Mainland. Okay. Do we? Do we? Is there pretty? Is there evidence that this is a gang hit? I don't think so at this point. I mean, yeah. there may well be that I don't know about, right? right. But right. Um, it, you know, that's a lot of effort for someone to go to to get rid of a body. It doesn't seem like you know the most sophisticated tactic. And you know, we had a shooting Sunday night in Cloverdale. Two people end up driving themselves to hospital with injuries, and a short distance away, police found a burnt-out vehicle likely used by the suspect. So that's more typical for the gang violence that we've seen, unfortunately, over the last uh, few years. Just in the minute we got left here, Kim, what is the current status of, of Metro's gang wars here? I mean, we hear these headlines all the time, but I think it's a little difficult for the public to know, is this like a surge or a spasm in, in gunplay and violence, or is this this sort of situation normal? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it was very quiet in the first weeks and months of the COVID pandemic. Uh, you know, people involved in organized crime, like everyone else, were laying lower than usual, but it really seemed to spike, uh, you know, starting last month and continuing into this month. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had a lot of violence and we've had some high profile shootings like the one outside the Dunbar restaurant earlier this month. You know, the, the one of the high level um, alleged money launderer in Richmond last month, a young fellow killed in South Vancouver a couple of days earlier. So there has been an escalation in recent weeks of uh, gang violence. Um, not, unfortunately, uh, any different than we've seen previously when we've had spikes, but something that is troubling and concerning, and quite frankly, I'm surprised it's not more of an election issue. Yeah, I agree with you there. Kim, thank you for coming on, and and, uh, great work that you continue to do. I appreciate your time today. Anytime, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the rules for forming a labor union here in British Columbia now. The right for workers to band together and form a union, that is a fundamental right in our system. Workers have the right to form a union, have that union certified by the Labor Relations Board, and then bargain a collective agreement, a contract with their employer on issues like their pay, benefits, and working conditions. That is fundamental in British Columbia and across Canada. Here's where this becomes an election issue in this provincial election campaign. The rules around how this is done. Now let's talk about the secret ballot provision in British Columbia. That's the law in our province right now. If workers want to form a union, they have to vote on it, and they vote in secret. The reason for a secret ballot is to avoid intimidation on either side. Intimidation by the union. Intimidation by management. 
You vote in secret. That's how you decide whether you want to join a union in British Columbia. Now, the labor movement, for a long time, has wanted to get rid of that secret ballot provision in the law in British Columbia. They want a different system called card check. That's where if the worker signs a union card... That's how you vote. That's effectively your vote. You sign a union card, you have voted. That's potentially done in public. The other workers would know how you've done if you sign that card. Should we keep that secret ballot provision in British Columbia, though? The unions want to get rid of it. I asked Horgan about this yesterday. NDP leader John Horgan, he was on the show yesterday. I asked him, would a re-elected NDP government scrap that secret ballot for forming a union in B.C.? Here's what he told me. We did a review of the Labor Code. It came back with recommendations about card check. Uh, we didn't proceed with those recommendations because the Green Party caucus wouldn't support us. I'll take a look at that when we get back. Uh, should we be successful on the 24th? But quite frankly, Mike, we're focused right now on the pandemic. That's what British Columbians are, are seized with every day in their homes and their workplaces. And that's my number one priority. Okay, he seized with the pandemic. I get it. We all are. The pandemic is top of mind for everybody. But this is still a key issue here, fundamental to our labor law in British Columbia. You heard what he said there. We'll take a look at it if he forms government. Now, the Green Party, as he mentioned, they were opposed to changing the law. They wanted to keep the secret ballot. If the NDP wins a majority government on Saturday, which a lot of people think they will do, Will they get rid of this secret ballot provision for forming a union? Could that make it easier for unions to organize in British Columbia? All right, let's talk about this now with my guest, Chris Gardner. He is the president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Chris, thanks for coming on. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Okay, let's talk about the the secret ballot. You support the secret ballot rule, right? Yeah, definitely. We think, as you outlined, that this is a fundamental right that workers uh, workers enjoy right now in the workplace. Uh, they have the right to uh, to consider whether or not to join a union and to express their opinion on that decision uh, through a secret ballot. And that ensures, as you pointed out, that there's no undue influence exerted by either management or union organizers. And nothing could be fairer, more open, more transparent than the secret ballot. So the move to yeah. take it out of the labor code uh, is puzzling and I, w- I think offends the rights of uh, workers across the province. Okay, right now, let's say a union is trying to organize a, a, a workplace. The union has the right to communicate to the workers, right? And, and explain to them, here's why we think it would be to your advantage to join a union. And does management also have the right to, to say to workers, look, maybe we think you, this would be a bad idea, we, you should not join a union? Like, th- do they have the right to communicate that to the workers and state their case? Yes, but there are limits around what management can do, particularly once, um, if you want to certify a union, if 45% of the workers sign cards, yeah. Uh, under the existing system, that then triggers a review by the labor board if they certify that that does represent 45% of the employees in that business. Uh, then there's a there's a secret ballot vote held within uh, within five business days. Um, so once that happens, then in, there are very strict rules around what employers can say. That, for example, they can't threaten to shut down the business. Uh, they can't say we were going to give you a raise, but if you vote to unionize, we're not going to give you that raise. So they can't threaten or intimidate. Um, they can talk about the business, 
Um, right. and, uh, but they cannot uh, threaten employees. Um, so once, once that decision uh, has been certified, once the, the, uh, the cards right. have been certified. Uh, so there are very strict rules, um, and, and that's fine. Um, right. I, you know, nobody is, is suggesting that workers should not have the right to organize and talk about the advantages and disadvantages of, of forming a union. And, and so the, the, what the secret ballot does, and I went through this uh, when I was working for a, a company um, called Britco, and, uh, and there was a certification drive at our facility in Penticton where we were employing 150 workers. And um, 50% of those workers signed cards at that time. Uh, and then when we had the, the results of the secret ballot vote, which were held at that time 10 days later, um, 80% of the workers voted not to join the union. Wow. Um, so that's an example of how things shift and how important it is that we maintain the secret ballot so that we get the true intention of workers revealed so that they're not, they don't feel intimidated. You know, it's easy right. for three or four people to say, hey, Ed, sign the card, or Mary, sign this card. Everybody signed the card, so you don't want to be left out. Right, right. right. So that's a very interesting example where people may feel, if, they're, if their fellow workers or their fellow employees know uh, that we're all in it together, we're all signing this card, but then... You get your final say in a, in a secret ballot. Is the union certified after you have the secret ballot vote? Is the union certified if you get a major, like a bare majority, fifty percent plus one? Is that the rule? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What about card check? How would that system work? This appears to be the system that the labor movement would like to have. Uh, John Horgan just told me there in that clip we played. He's going to look take a look at this card check system instead of the secret ballot. How would that work? Card check. Well, basically, you would get the um, the threshold number. Let's say it's forty five percent or fifty percent, whatever the um, uh, the NDP government would decide is the threshold. And if if they meet that threshold, the Labor Relations Board would look at the payroll list of the employees. They would compare that to the cards they received. If they reach the threshold, then they're automatically certified. And right. within ten days, the employer and the new bargaining have to start to negotiate a new collective agreement. Right, so, so it's, fairly, it's a fairly draconian process. Okay, so for so for example, in in the in the example that you cited, that you had personal involvement with there, where did you say it was how many? What was the percentage of people who signed the cards? Did you say seventy percent? Initially, it was fifty percent. Oh, okay, um, and then after the secret ballot vote, which took place ten business days later, eighty uh, percent of the employees. All right. Employees decided not to join the union. Right. Okay. So I guess yeah, when you had the secret ballot, but I guess if if you had a card check system there, conceivably the it union would have been, would have been automatically yeah. certified without a secret ballot. That's right. right. And I, yeah. I think this really is an issue about fairness. It's not about being able to communicate and and debate the merits one way or another about forming a unit. It's really about being fair and open and transparent and having ensuring that when workers make the decision. They're doing it of their own accord. Um, they haven't been intimidated by other the company. And there are listen, there are overzealous management teams out there. There are overzealous union organizers out there. It works both ways. So the only way to ensure that this vote is fair and open is to preserve a secret ballot for workers. So they can go into that ballot box just like we're going to be – some people have done now in advance polls and some people do on Saturday. And cast your ballot – after you've considered this very important decision. And nothing could be fairer or more open. And so the, the move by the NDP to strip the secret ballot away from workers um, is troubling. 
Uh, it's not fair. Um, and when John Horgan says right now the only thing he's thinking about is the pandemic, well, we know that's not true because he called an election and the election was scheduled a year from now. So none of this really makes sense. Do you think if they got rid of the secret ballot and they went with this card check system instead, would that effectively make it more likely or easier for a union to become certified? Like, is, is that why the labor movement wants the card check system? They don't want the secret ballot because they believe they will be able to organize more workplaces and certify more unions without a yeah, secret ballot? That's exactly it. I mean, if you look at the construction workforce in British Columbia today, there are about 250,000 men and women who woke up this morning and went to a job site to help build their problems. Of those 250,000 men and women, only 15% are organized by the traditional building trades that are really the the, the most vocal uh, supporters of the card check system. 85% of the men and women working in construction today in British Columbia are not affiliated uh, with the traditional building trades unions. So this is just right. an effort to stack the deck in favor of those unions growing their membership. And okay. it's really not fair to workers who, who, who don't want to join those unions. All right, three days to go in the election campaign here. General Voting Day is this Saturday. Now, if the NDP get that majority government, would they get rid of the secret ballot rule for certifying a union in British Columbia? That's what the union movement wants here in B.C., and I think uh, Horgan's going to deliver it for them if he gets that majority on Saturday. My guest is Chris Gardner. Your call is to him, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Brian and Langley. Hi, Brian. Hey, how's it going, man? Good, good. So back around 1985, I was in a shop. Uh, production facility and they certified they got a union in so there was about 54 guys and i there was a bad bad group of uh, guys that brought this in very aggressive intimidating i didn't like it i refused to sign a union card and it caused a whole big kerfuffle and uh, so two years later the guys that were on the board and the union member like the the shop guys they treasurer they came and said we want this thing out of here we want the union gone so i said okay so i phoned the labor board and said what do we do to get this union out of here and the labor board which i thought was a government arm they said well you don't want to do that they tried to talk me out of it on the phone i said listen we want to have a vote so anyway they arranged the date they came in with a ballot box and what shocked me was it was 50 percent to get that union in the shop but it took 75 percent had the vote to get it out and i said what was that what was the result of the vote uh they voted it out Uh, they voted it out it went out and uh okay okay thank you thank you for that brian chris so you can vote it it is possible to decertify a union in british columbia is that right that is correct yes and there are rules around that as well um Obviously, you know, these are, these are compli- it becomes complicated if you get to that point. Uh, and then sometimes you will have, you know, one union saying, we think we'll do a better job of representing the workers at this, at this company than yeah. this other union. And then so the unions can end up fighting for. Uh, that can be a raid, support. a union raid. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Was he correct there in the, in the threshold? It was 75% required to decertify a union. Is that right? I don't know the decertification number, um, so okay. I, and that was back in 1985, I think he said. Yeah. So the okay, rules have definitely that. changed since then. I'll check it. David and Merritt. Hiya, David. 
you know, I don't know why you guys are so upset about this. I think it's a phenomenal idea, and I think we should carry it forward. We should all, uh, you know, get together in Roger's place and, and ask how we're going to vote for the provincial election and all raise our hands. I mean, doesn't that seem like a democratic way to do things? I mean, I'm obviously tongue-in-cheek here, but this just goes against all principles of a democracy, and, and I'm shaking my head. Okay, thanks for the call. Well, I guess it does get down. There is a pretty fundamental democratic argument there uh, for it. But, um, Chris, your thoughts? Well, listen, and, and the caller is exactly right. You, you don't go into meetings and show of hands to vote for your local council, your MLAs, your MPs. You use a secret ballot. And, uh, and there's reasons for that. People, people want to be able to express their opinion freely uh, and not yeah. necessarily have that broadcast out to, to everyone else. And that is the cornerstone of our democracy. And it's disingenuous to say that, you know, when when John Horgan says he consulted with British Columbians and there was a recommendation to uh, support card check, well, who did they consult and who did they listen to? Um, The reality is only 15% of construction workers in this province are organized by the traditional building trades and they want the field tilted in their favor so they can increase that number. Okay. It's unfair to the 85% of construction workers who are not affiliated with those units. Squeeze in one more call. Lorena in Clearwater. you got to go fast, though, okay? In a nutshell, we need to maintain as many rights as we possibly can. And unfortunately, most people have difficulty standing up in the face of opposition and or pressure. So I think the secret ballot needs to stay if we're going to maintain any sort of of uh, proper representation of the population. Okay, Lorena, thank you very much. It'll be interesting to see what happens here, Chris. The opinion polls appear to be pointing to a, a win for John Horgan and the NDP on Saturday. So we continue to follow this issue closely around a secret ballot in British Columbia. That's going to be a key one going forward. Thanks a lot for your thoughts on it today. Great. Thank you very much. Bonnie Henry's a bipartisan deal. responsible. You lie about everything. We You lie Oh, wow. That's some of the sound from the anti-mask rally in Vancouver on the weekend. We saw a large group of anti-maskers there surround a global news team there. You heard them. They're angry, angry at the media, also angry at any kind of move to make mandatory face masks the law of the land in British Columbia. They don't like it. They're anti-maskers. We're seeing more and more of these type of protests. Now, they are kind of a fringe movement for sure, let's face it. But, man, we're seeing more of them, some of them pretty big, too. There were two anti-mask rallies in Vancouver on the weekend. One on Saturday, Vancouver police said there was around up to a thousand people at it. That's a lot. We've seen demonstrations as well aboard BC ferries, where of course they've got a mandatory face mask rule on the ferries. Also, some businesses that are mandating face masks for their customers have seen some protests as well. There was one the other day at Bowl and Books in Victoria, a large, very popular bookstore in Victoria. They got a, a mask rule there. Protesters went in there, disrupted, challenged uh, challenged staff in there, and of course, uploading everything to YouTube and other social media sites. So let's talk about this now, the anti-mask movement. My guest, Carly Weeks, the very fine health reporter for the Globe and Mail. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Carly. Hi there. Thanks a lot for doing this. Are we seeing more of these type of protests and rallies across Canada? I mean... Anecdotally, yes, I would say we are, and I've, I've even seen them. Yeah, just uh, you know, walking around downtown Toronto, you you happen upon them, and 
um, I think it does speak to this idea of people who are, you know, for whatever reason, you know, set up with all the rules and restrictions coming at them, and they're just responding in this way. Now, of course, we all are experiencing a little bit of pandemic fatigue, but I think what this, um, when you do see this, um, these movements springing up more and more, I think it does speak to something that's even a little bit more sort of chilling going on, which is this idea that people are sort of choosing to believe all kinds of nonsense theories about, you know, masks and the pandemic. You know, they're, they're not just saying we don't like the mask. Some of them are actually promoting, you know, really... Um, really false ideas that masks are somehow tied to the illness. You know, we see right. everyone from the U.S. president saying this kind of thing. There, it's it's really troubling to see these kinds of things taking off uh, more and more. Yeah, I mean, when you took a look at the crowds that came out in Vancouver on the weekend, limited though they were, but if you listen to what some of the people are saying or some of the signs that they're waving, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. You got QAnon protesters, you've got Trump Trump supporters, you've got people talking about some shadow government that, that's controlling our lives around the world. You got people who think the masks actually have the opposite effect and will actually make you sick, not prevent you from getting sick. So there's there's a whole variety of reasons and motivations for, for people feeling this way. Uh, it does appear to be kind of a, a, a fringe movement, obviously, Carly, but do you think they have a, a bigger impact than maybe mo- people realize. Yeah, I mean, definitely. We've seen this with the anti-vaccine movement. I mean, it's a fringe group, but they have a very loud vocal voice. And now the dawn of social media has ushered in this era where people can basically choose their own news source and choose what to believe. Um, there's, you know, survey after survey has been coming out saying that people, a lot of people, uh, see places like YouTube and Facebook as legitimate sources of news. And and sure, you know, legitimate news does get shared on social media, but a lot of people are using those platforms to spread false theories. And so what we're seeing as a result, um, these issues and ideas are taking off. And, you know, I think the pandemic uh, has really brought a lot of this to the forefront because, you know, vaccines are, are sort of their big issue, but for a lot of people, it wasn't really pressing in their everyday life. This pandemic is. And so, you know, people are now, uh, for whatever reason, you know, sort of really out there with these conspiracy theories, and they're not really afraid anymore to kind of say that they believe in them, you know, that, right. um, they, and they don't even see them as conspiracy theories. And, and this is, um, I think that what we're seeing is that this is actually having a spillover effect. They, they are influencing people. More people are believing that, you know, the eventual coronavirus vaccine is not going to be safe and that that right. masks are a problem. Um, and so this speaks to a much broader problem facing public health officials. Right. Speaking of Carly Weeks from the Globe and Mail, speaking of the sort of the anti-vax movement, uh, do you see a lot of kind of bleed over between sort of anti-maskers and, and anti-vaxxers? I mean, is it largely kind of the same same people in many cases? And And when we eventually do get a COVID-19 vaccine, is that a problem if, if a, a certain percentage of, of the population doesn't want to take the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, there very much there's a ton of overlap between the anti-vaxxers and people who now are calling themselves, you know, anti-maskers. Um, they're all invested in this idea that, you know, they say false things, completely false things like this pandemic is, you know, basically all made up and that we're better off just to get the virus and get herd immunity. I mean, all kinds of really dangerous and selfish ideas that we know will cause tons of harm and, and destruction if they actually did move forward. 
so you know we have these people that for, that um, you know have for a long time have been just very disruptive to public health in terms of promoting anti-vaccine theories now spilling over to this pandemic. And so what we're seeing is that surveys are showing that a lot of people don't have confidence in the idea of a COVID nineteen vaccine. Now you know that could change when one does hit the market, but I think that there's um, there's going to be a lot of um, some legitimate concern because you know this thing is new and we need to do a lot of safety uh, research on it but the problem is you know there's already been so much um, discussed that people are many people are afraid of a vaccine that hasn't even really been invented yet and so if you have that segment of the population some surveys say it's as high as half of the population say they won't take a vaccine that is going to cause major problems for getting immunity where we need it to be and so it could just exacerbate this pandemic even further and and you know again coming back to this idea that you know um People who are just saying these kinds of things on social media, largely on social media, uh, they're really disrupting um, public health in a huge way. And, you know, by extension, you know, all of our lives, because we are really depending on each other to sort of follow these rules to help us get through this thing. Carly, thanks for coming on with your take on it today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. That is Carly Weeks, health reporter at The Globe and Mail. Uh, talking about anti-maskers, we saw we saw two rallies in Vancouver on the weekend. We've seen disruptions in private businesses aboard BC ferries. Have a listen to this here now. There is a movement in Vancouver to make man- face masks mandatory in public buildings, uh, municipal public buildings in Vancouver, as supported by Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby Young. Let's have a listen to what she thinks about it. Libraries, um, things like City Hall. Vancouver Civic Theatres and our community centres. And of course, this would need to go to our partners at uh, the Vancouver Park Board, for example, because they have jurisdiction over the community centres. 